Hey friends, the views of our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of Let's Talk Menopause. Let's Talk Menopause does not provide medical advice. The content in this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions that you may have. We feel it's important to let you know that the topic of suicide is discussed in this episode. If you find suicide triggering, you may want to skip this episode. And if you have suicidal thoughts or you've experienced depressive symptoms that get in the way of your functioning at work or at home that lasts more than two weeks, please seek help. Call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255 or you really can just dial 911. There is help. Our value is very much based on our looks. Sex appeal and childbearing capabilities. You're either reproductive and you're young or you're menopausal and you're old. Nobody seems to want to know about women in their 50s. We're not useful anymore. The zeitgeist has kind of left them behind. And then you end up screaming, no, I have value and no one's listening to you. How do things like race and gender identity or expression factor into menopause? Specifically black women, symptoms are kind of dismissed very frequently. There's stereotypes that could come with it. If, you know, you're talking about the trans community. How your gender expression aligns with what's happening internally, biologically, is going to play a huge role in how comfortable you feel. Not everyone who has a uterus is a woman, and not every woman has a uterus. This is Hello Menopause, a podcast where you'll hear real menopause stories from real people. Whispering behind closed doors? Not here. And we promise it is not just in your head. And you are not alone. I'm your host, Christine McGinnis. And I'm your other host, Robin Gelfenbein. Let's talk menopause. At the top of the episode, we heard our menopause on the street segment. Now, for those of you who don't know, this is a segment where I go out on the streets of New York and ask total strangers about menopause. Oh, I'm clutching my heart. I know. I know. The woman who said, and it's funny because I can always like picture who these people are, but what she said I thought was interesting in terms of being just so black and white with you're either reproductive and you're young or you're menopausal and you're old. And obviously there's plenty shades of gray in there, but I just thought like, oh, just hits you in the gut, you know? Yeah. It did feel like that. I had the same reaction, just like this wowza, woo. There's a lot of those. And then the woman who said, like, nobody wants to know about women in their 50s, like, we're not useful anymore. Like, all of it just sounded so heartbreaking. It did. And I can't express that when I'm talking to people, but internally, you know, I'm standing there going, hmm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I'm like, oh, oh my God. But it's yeah. true. It's just how a lot of people feel, you know? Right. I just wish, I mean, I'm 55, so I'm on the far end of this, that why is old a bad thing? It comes with some strengths. And it's just, I guess we're such an anti-aging society, like in marketing, everything's like, look younger, feel younger. Mm-hmm. And I think, oh, I just wish somehow we could make it a billion dollar industry to promote the, the wisdom, the knowledge, the sense of self that comes with being older. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe help me remember, I can't get the exact words, but you... The person who said, not every woman has a uterus. Not everyone who has a uterus is a woman, and not every woman has a uterus. Yes. 
I like having the conversation about what it must feel like to be born female, but to not feel female. So then have your biology at the time of menopause start taking over your machinery. And that has to be Mm. quite a discordant feeling is the best way I can say it. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that that was one of the questions that we asked because I think it's something people hadn't really given much thought to. And then just going back to the idea of the woman who said, like, nobody cares about women in their 50s, we're not useful anymore, we're not valued. And and then I think there was a counterpoint to that. I think it was from one of the men saying, like, you do have a lot of value, but, like, nobody gives you a chance, essentially. Yeah. I can see that, but I also see, and I'm not naturally optimistic, but I actually see a lot of women my age who are having fabulous success, starting new careers and really shining and trying things they never thought they would try. And Mm -hmm. I don't know that I really agree. I see it differently. That's great. I mean, that gives people hope. There's so many factors that come into that too. I don't know where that woman is from, you know, what kind of like family life she has, what kind of support system she has, you know. But I think just the notion that, yes, you can reinvent yourself. You can start over. You can try something new is really encouraging to people. Our guest for today is the award-winning poet, Gabrielle Calva-Caressi. Their work has been featured in the New York Times, the Boston Review, and so many others. Gabby is the author of the poetry collections Rocket Fantastic and Apocalyptic Swing and teaches at UNC Chapel Hill. Joy, compassion, and social justice are at the center of their personal and poetic practice. We were introduced to Gabrielle's jaw-dropping work through their poem, My Perimenopausal Body Cistern, Disappointing. How surprising. About their experience with perimenopause as a non-binary person, which is powerful beyond words and absolutely took our breath away. We are so grateful and unbelievably excited to speak with the incredible Gabrielle Calvacaresi. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today, Gabby. Could you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Hi, everyone. I am Gabrielle Calvacaresi, but you can all call me Gabby. Uh, my pronouns are they, she. I identify as non-binary and also a uh, lesbian. And I live in Durham, North Carolina, although I'm from the Northeast. And I'm talking to you now from Atlantic Beach, North Carolina. I'm trying to work on new poems for this new book of mine. And a lot of whom kind of take, really think about this idea of what it is to be in a non-binary vessel. Like, what is it to be in that vessel? All of a sudden thinking about my uterus all the time. And I'll also say I'm three weeks out from surgery where uh, we can talk about that too. So part of this has been being perimenopausal and part of it has also been fibroids and all sorts of other stuff. So it's a complicated time and I'm really happy to be here. So I want to piggyback on that and say that when we read your poem, the minute I read it, I knew like we had to get you on this podcast because it was so moving. And before I say too much more about it, I would be really honored if you would read it so our listeners can also have that experience. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. This is called um, My Perimenopausal Body Cistern. Disappointing. How surprising. My perimenopausal body cistern. Disappointing. How surprising. Bled all day. Stopped bleeding. Bled some more. Went to the doctor who reached inside the woman body I try to live with, make peace with, 
but also ignore. Sad tenant, my uterus. One day, the tenant turned out to be my landlord. All day, I wonder what it means. Clock, I know as well as I know anything, but also never wanted and also won't give up. In the history of my light body, it will show I could have been another. The shots, the surgeon's blade, that freedom. But I hold on. Not out of fear. Well, maybe, but also this body I fought for. Timid skin sack that grew into a kind of magnificence I'd not expected. I tie my bow tie around my neck that's not quite the neck I want. But still... The neck survived. Hours on the floor begging for my life, bent head crying in the bathroom, bent head walking by the boys yelling, hog and dog and ugly as an animal. It's confusing. I protect the breasts that I live without in my mind's eye. I look for hours at men's trousers and kimonos and bleed all day. My mind says, take it out, and though it's one step closer to the one true self I wanted, also, I'd miss it in ways I can't explain. Burnt off scroll. I'm a mirror of a mirror. When I was eight at daycare, my friends put me aside to talk about a sex change. All of us in our Catholic uniforms, Meg, Emily, Nadine, and Brian, who got kicked out because of me. That's later in the story. We drew me in the sand. We planned and wondered how much it cost to be another body. But now I know my body. I pull up my pants and feel the lack of one thing as the muffin top reminds me of the persistence of another. Me, who's with me always. This pillow that looked over me, pillow of skin and fat that I'd call Rubenesque. It tried its best cover me. So I worry over it. Strange companion, this body that covers me and bleeds all day without ceasing. I say, come on. I say, stop. Like I used to when I'd get too scared or one, of one thing or another. God comes back to find me in the most confounding ways. Me and my body, who are often not the same. It's so moving. There are thank just you. so many words to describe what you just shared with us. First of all, thank you for sharing it. It's, thank you. It's profound in ways I can't even begin to describe. I wanted to know what inspired you to write it. Yeah. I would say that for the last couple of years, I have been having gynecological issues, which at least in part, I think are certainly perimenopausal issues. All of a sudden, I went from being someone who had had a really normal, whatever normal, let's say normal is my period comes on time and it's five days and maybe I have a little cramping, but you know, not that much. And in the last two years, I started bleeding a lot more heavily, like a lot more heavily. And then I had ultrasounds and they found like little fibroid, but not so much to be concerned about. And then about over the last year, around five days before my period would start, I would hit like a, a level of darkness emotionally that, and I'm going to do a trigger warning right now, actually. I'm going to say that, that, that it is very possible today that I'm going to speak about suicidal ideation. 
So anyway, so from like five days before my period, and I'd be so interested if other people have had this happen. I mean, I really like would, I mean, it was, it was so dark and really um, hard to be alive. Like I just would, I would descend and it would stay until about the third or fourth day of my period. So that was like one of the things where I was like, something is really changing in my body is, I mean, I've had periods of, you know, anxiety and depression, but this was really intense. And I will say I'm someone who's, Um, My mother took her life when I was very young. And so it is something that is just in my system. It's a gate that is open. And so I really pay attention. And so I went to my doctor and I said, my gynecologist, who is amazing, and I'm very lucky for the first time to have a gynecologist who's really good with non-binary and trans people, queer people. It's been really important. So my doctor said, which I think is true, she said, you know, I think you're going through perimenopause. So she said, let's put you on some birth control to try and get some of these, some of these symptoms under control. And my experience of taking the birth control pill was then I bled constantly and heavily for 22 days. Oh God. That really began a whole thing leading up to three weeks ago where it turned out I had fibroids that had really grown, but also just that my body is, is, uh, I both love my body and it's a total alien. It's really alien to me right now. It's also really something learning to love an alien. (laughs) I found this poem to be a bit of a love-hate story. Oh, yeah. You have this tremendous unease with your body not being the vessel you were meant to be born into. But what, what really impacts me is that you have such a profound gratitude for that body for getting you through life and and protecting you do, you. do you feel that's a fair assessment for me to... Oh, totally. I mean, you know, I think that um, I have never been someone who really thought of myself as female. I've never been someone who thought much about my reproductive organs. My life of sexual fantasy is not really bound up in those organs or my genitalia in that way. And so at the same time, When I had a breast cancer scare and all of a sudden there was a chance I was going to lose my breast, I was amazed. This was many years ago. I was amazed by how emotional that was for me when I, and the same with thinking about having a hysterectomy. And, And I'm struck by part of it is that particularly with my mother, you know, having lived in a world where people chose not to stay alive and also having gone through various kinds of trauma and things like that. There's also a gratitude for like this body has gotten me through just the act of me looking even more now like I've ever thought that I could look like myself. I feel proud of that and proud of my body. And but yeah, I mean, one of the things that I remember saying both to my partner and to my doctor when I was just bleeding and bleeding and bleeding and I was so at the end of my rope, as probably so many people who are listening to this can see, is I just said, I never wanted this body in the first place. Like I never wanted these organs in the first place. And I can say it now and sort of, you know, in this way, but I mean, imagine that with like a real deep growl of desperation Mm. of just like, I don't want this anyway. Right. And I think that that's something that um, I always only want to speak from my own experience and not particularly speak for other non-binary or trans people, because what do I know? But I don't think that's an alien thing. There's also like, There's another kind of destabilization of having to all of a sudden, you know, be thinking about one's uterus, ovaries, genitalia, blood constantly. Yeah. It's like you can't, you can't turn a blind eye to your own biology. Right. 
How are you able to come to terms with that or have that gratitude when you've come from like such a low point? Who knows? <laughs> I mean, that just requires a lot of discipline and I'm sure it comes and goes at times. It comes and goes all the time. And um, what consistently saves my life in this world has been meditative practice. And I will say I was very lucky. I do think of it as luck. I'm not being facetious. And so for anyone who's going through this right now, I'm not being facetious. And I'm also not assuming that this is what is going to happen to you. I had a like good old fashioned nervous breakdown in 2004. And I just like, I dropped my basket entirely. And during that time, I was really, really lucky at a time when I really kind of didn't know how to stay alive to have an amazing therapist and also to have both my psychiatrist and my GP have me do the John Kabat-Zinn mindfulness program. It was a 10-week program, and it was a program that I would say that one of the things that has allowed me to stay alive in general and in this moment on my good days to really sit with this stuff has been a lot of the techniques I learned there and then continuing to have a sitting practice and continuing to have a meditative practice. And one of the things our teacher said to us at the beginning, which at first I was like, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard, was um, (laughs) how I'm feeling right now is how I'm feeling right now. I was in the midst of a terrible moment and I said it to myself and all of a sudden something about time made itself clear to me. And I, and I realized like I say that to myself all day long, almost every day. And specifically during this time, you know, how I am right now is how I am right now. I want to go back to the meditation just for just a brief second, just because you're talking about sitting with your feelings And I'm wondering if the fact that you're a writer really helped you through that time too, Mm. because I was just curious, like, did it help you process what you were feeling or were you like, this is the last thing I want to do right now? (laughs) Were you, were you sort of conflicted or, or did your writing really play a part in that? Yes. To all, I mean, that's so, the way you phrase that is so beautiful because I think yes to each of those things. I think that, um, right now my writing is helping me in this time as I, really more overtly, like think through these things on the page is really about not just looking sort of through the tunnel, but taking in all kinds of things that are going on around you. And I think that during that time, and I do still think during these times, even on my worst days, I do think I have a capability most days to, even when it's terrible. And in in that period of my life, when I didn't want to live just the quality of attention and patience and curiosity. Yeah. Sometimes during this perimenopausal time, particularly when my mood has had real trouble, one of the only things that keeps me going is just like something interesting happens and I can't help but be like, oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I have read this poem probably 15 to 20 times. I cannot read it without choking up. Even when you were reading it today, I totally choke up because I feel like a a narrative or story tells just that, a story. But poetry makes you feel what the author is writing, or at least it did for me. As I read it, it's almost like Mm. for just a nanosecond, I feel what you're feeling. It's awesome. What has the reaction been from others, especially from other non-binary people? Like, has, Has anything surprised you about how people react? I've been very lucky in my life. I've been so lucky in my life to have various poems um, that I have written that a fairly sizable amount of people have read and they've meant something to them. I got so many letters from people and I got so many people like 
DMing me and and but I was struck by actually like how universally important it seemed to people and that one of the things that just seems true is that this is a time in our lives where so many of us feel really alienated from our bodies and and kind of like betrayed by our bodies a little bit. And I think this is changing. I think more and more people, because of amazing podcasts like yours and organizations like yours, I've talked more about my body with my friends in the last seven months than I have in my whole life. Like I've talked about, and with my non-binary friends, with friends who, are, who identify as trans, with, but also with straight women friends, who I never talked about that stuff with my straight women friends. And like, I think that there was a way in which this poem just came at a moment where all of a sudden a lot more people were talking about this stuff and it gave like another doorway for people to go through. And then I feel really, really, I feel really grateful about that because um, it gave me another doorway. I felt less alone. Oh, I'm so glad. I know sometimes reading in public can feel really vulnerable and I'm sure because of the pandemic, it's been a while since you did that. But did you find that you like learned something new each time you would read it in front of an audience? I just was always struck by the parts that are like hard for me to read. I had a great uh, experience with Poetry Magazine in terms of the editing. And one of the things we talked about was the phrase sex change, for instance, because that's not something people say anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think now if you were to say that to someone, it would seem deeply problematic. And it is. Yeah, I grew up hearing that. But that's what it was called in the 80s. And so then we had the discussion about putting into quotes. I still feel uncomfortable. Like even as I read it today, I feel uncomfortable reading it when it's not clear that it's in quotes, right? But I'm also really struck by when I do read it often, I have a lot of people from my generation and earlier who come to me and say, yeah, like I used to think about it all the time when I was younger. You know, this used to be like a conversation I would have with myself. How would I do this? How would this look? Like how could, it's still such a difficult process and choice. And there are lots of states in this country where healthcare is not adequate for trans people. Um, You know, surgery is not available to too many people. But when I was growing up, to have that surgery was something that like, I just, I dreamt of it and it also felt totally impossible to me. And there's something in that poem too that I think where people think about the body and the dreamed of body and the imagined body that I get a lot of people, like I get a lot of people coming to me and talking to me about that. Yeah, sure. You just said something about not enough access for transgender people to medical care. And I heard that like a good number of non-binary and transgender people avoid seeking medical care due to discrimination and the fear of being shamed. Oh, yeah. Does that ring true for you? Oh, totally. It was always difficult because of like gender stuff for me to like think about having a, a pelvic. But I remember very clearly, like when I was the first time I went to a gynecologist, I was a young gay kid. I took antibiotics. I had no idea about yeast infections, that you could get a yeast infection. I got a terrible yeast infection. I went into the doctor's office. I was in incredible pain. And they kept asking me if I was pregnant. I was not pregnant. And then I said, I'm a lesbian. I'm not pregnant. I'm a lesbian. And then the doctor kept asking me what kind of sex toys I use. And I, I hate to admit this about myself because like, I think people are very worldly from earlier, but I had no idea about that stuff. I really didn't. Oh, that's so abusive. Oh my God. And then at the end, she says to me, Next time I won't be so gentle. <gasps> I didn't go back to a gynecologist 
for years. And then what I did, though, and I think this is important to say, is that then I went to the Gay and Lesbian Health Center in New York. And I will say that as much as I love that organization, and that organization was great for me in lots of ways, I had the other side of the coin, which was then I had a healthcare provider who didn't want to hurt me. And then the next two I tried with were so gentle. And so I, for many years, I say both of those stories because I think I had an experience that that maybe a lot of people have had, which isn't just the sadistic, abusive, homophobic doctor, but also the really caring, good people who also don't want to do anything to make you even more uncomfortable than you already are. What I finally found in, in Chapel Hill, and if people can go to a place where they find this and it's hard to do, was I found someone who was um, deeply caring, deeply nurturing, incredibly good at their job, and also was like, you need to have an exam. We need to figure out how to do this because you need to have an exam. Right. It sounds like you found an awesome gynecologist, but... (laughs) Melinda Everett at Chapel Hill OBGYN. I'm telling you, like, if you live in North Carolina... But I say that because it's really hard. We worked on it for a long time, and I was 45 years old before I had before I had a real exam. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I just didn't, I just didn't go. I didn't believe I could get a good experience. I also was embarrassed, you know, like I felt Mm -hmm. ashamed and embarrassed that I couldn't do it. I mean, I I think there's this real performance thing too, of like, I should be able to take care of myself. I can't. And I just felt like no one would understand. I mean, it wasn't until I said to Melinda, like, this is really hard for me gender-wise. Like I'm having a really hard time with this. And she was like, yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you found somebody who could really take care of you Gosh. and be so compassionate. Ugh. So back to the poem, you seem to examine two notions that we hear often when we talk to people about menopause, loneliness and a feeling of suddenly being invisible. When I read your poems, I sense that you can see loneliness as a good thing and a bad thing, that sometimes it's a comfort to be cloaked and that sometimes it's a lonely place to be. Is that fair. And also that like, there is a place where loneliness and solitude come together that I think is really powerful. I think that for me, and this is just me, but the space where um, like loneliness and alienation Mm. come together is a place where it's real, there's real suffering there. Maybe even more for me, loneliness and perceived alienation is where like, it's really painful, right? Maybe no one's alienating me, but I feel it. Mm -hmm. I think also part of queer experience, there's a kind of loneliness for me that has always been part of that. And maybe like not always being in the body that I imagine for myself is kind of loneliness of being separated from the body that you imagine but doesn't exist. So, you know, we've been talking to a lot of people and even in, in getting Let's Talk Menopause up and running, we found this kind of interesting, Robin and I in talking about meeting with you, this interesting parallel because cisgender women who go through menopause often suddenly feel invisible after always having been visible. And they say, like, people don't see me anymore. You know, you don't get that little extra help at the gas station or, you know, you just, you're not seen and it, they find it very troubling. And I'm just curious from your perspective of, of having that through your life story, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's something that I, that rings very true to me. I mean, there are a lot of ways in which I feel a lot of compassion through this experience for cisgendered women, you know, I, I I think I felt, I always felt bad for and, and compassion for my friends who had, and not, it's not just cisgender women who have babies, but for the cisgender women I knew who had babies 
and had difficult pregnancies and and difficult births. I think that I I gave a kind of like support around that time, but I don't think I really could understand. I probably still can't, but I can in different ways now. Just like how destabilizing and how painful. Just like how much pain my friends were in when they were like sitting, you know, and and how their perceptions of their own bodies changed so much after that time. For many women, it seems to me that I know who had babies, that was also a kind of, um, not a beginning, but there was a way in which like a certain kind of whole patriarchal medical establishment stopped looking at them. So how are you feeling in your menopausal journey now? It's an odd time because I have had this surgery. So I had, I had a full DNC in part to get rid of the lining and see if that helped, but also because we don't know my mother's history and all of a sudden it was like, wait, like, are we dealing with cancer here? So I had, thank God the pathology came back clean. I'm thinking of anyone today who has not had clean pathology. It's terrifying to even have gotten good news was really scary. So I had a full DNC. Um, I do have a fibroid and they were able to get half of it out. The other half is in the muscle wall. So they used a myosure. They took that out. And then they put an IUD in, in hopes of like dealing with the bleeding and also helping the lining grow over the, what is the fibroid now? If that doesn't work, I'll need a hysterectomy probably. Hmm. I say that Robin, by way of saying, so I was dealing with all this hormonal stuff and everything. And now I've got the IUD in and like, as they said I would, like I've been bleeding a little bit like every single day and my mood is a little all over the place. And there's also just like, on one hand, I'm in a lot less discomfort and a lot less pain. But like so much of menopause and perimenopause, I don't know if you all agree with this or have the experience, there's both like that moment of feeling like, oh, it's better in this way. But then like, I don't know, for me, so much of perimenopause has been disappointment of like, oh, but I'm still like bleeding every day, you know? And they said I might. So I would say where I am in my journey right now is I'm really grateful that the surgery went as well as it did, but I am also dealing with just like, wow, this is a long journey. Yeah. Okay. So I want to wrap things up with saying that I read that all through your life, you've never felt entirely safe. And I can only imagine what that feels like. So given everything that's happening in the world right now, how do we remain compassionate in an unkind world? I personally think it's really hard. I know a lot of people will say it isn't, but I think it's really tough. Um, And I think partially for me, it's because there's like so many different, there are really so many different things requiring my compassion right now. And like a lot of compassion, you know, like a, a lot. I think there is compassion fatigue for sure. Yeah, it's hard, you know? And so I do think I go back to the things, and I mean, and I am a work in progress. I do think being curious helps me also to be compassionate. Like being curious and like looking at the world around me and and being interested in it is something, not to say I'm so great, but I think it has saved my life. And I think one of the ways one saves one's own life is by trying not to get destroyed and eaten alive by the brutality and bitterness that can, you know, arise in the world all the time. And I think compassion is also in a way selfish because it's a way of saving yourself there are days when I'm sort of destroyed by how many people do not want me and people like me alive. And then there, there are ways in which I can find compassion 
just by like really looking at them, really like listening to them. This is not everyone's strategy. Looking at them and really listening and like looking at the world around them and really trying to imagine like, what is it to be in that body? There's something about that that it allows me to at least like sit and just let certain things just happen. And then I can fight the fights I need to fight and want to fight Mm -hmm. and put some other stuff away for the day, you know? Mm -hmm. I feel like there's, as you're talking about compassion, I'm just thinking, I'm so glad that you were able to find the compassion within yourself to really respect what you were going through and really move through it how you needed to, like having the compassion for your body, um, I think says so much about who you are. Thank you. So Gabby, where can our listeners find out everything you're up to and how they can follow you and just absorb every last second of you and your gift to our world? You can find me on Instagram at Gabat, G-A-B-B-A-T. But if you just put my name in Instagram, that's where I am most of the time. I have a website. Uh, I have a remarkable uh, person who just handles my booking and just does like everything to make life luminous and easier for me, Vaughn Fielder at the Field Office Agency. So if you do Field Office and Gabrielle Calacresi, that'll show events. But Instagram is a great place to, to see me and to DM me. And I'm always happy to be in touch. Thank you so much for joining us, Gabby. It was an absolute, I can't even say pleasure, delight. No words can describe the conversation we just had. It was I don't think I've ever cried on this podcast, but I did get choked up. And I I thank you for that and for being so open and honest with your experiences. So thank you. Well, I'm so thankful. And thank you for having a body like mine on here. And so we could talk about this stuff. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to talk any other time. And I will say like, just to everyone who's listening, like, it's really, it's hard and amazing being you. I don't know you, but it's hard and amazing being you. And it's a hard and beautiful and difficult time. And I just really respect you all for going through it, um, that you're here. I really do. We're all doing it. Well, Robin, what did you think of that one? What didn't I think of it? There was just so much, it's weird to say joy, but it felt at times joyful, unbelievably compassionate, and so heartfelt that I truly hung on Gabby's every word. I couldn't get over how open they were. The word that comes to mind is compassionate. What did you think? Yeah. Well, you're stealing my line there because I had the same reaction that you can imagine the pain that Gabby has gone through and to come out of it with that much care for other humans. And I feel I have to thank Gabby because by listening to her poetry, it allowed me to understand a little bit, just the tiniest little bit, what it must feel like to be in a body that doesn't feel as if it's your own. And I don't know that I would have had as much insight into that without listening to that story. Mm -hmm. And it's an amazing vehicle to tell it via poetry. Yeah. Well, and I feel like their story just continues, just given everything that they were sharing about their recent surgery just how Gabby was describing their first gynecological visit to what they experienced at the, I don't remember exactly the name of the health center, and just what that's like to experience that world in their body. I mean, it just just how they're treated, 
in some cases so horribly, but then on the flip side, just all of the love and true support that they've gotten over time, whether it was in New York at that health center or now down in North Carolina, I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful to them for sharing. Like, it's truly a huge journey. Like, there's so much there. Yes. All I can say is I cannot wait to read what Gabby writes next. Hey, listeners, if you enjoy this podcast as much as we enjoy recording it, we'd love it if you could help us out. All you have to do is rate and review the show, and it will help us reach more listeners. It only takes a minute, and it makes a huge difference. It really does. And if you want to follow the show while you're at it, we won't mind. (laughs) No, we won't. And don't forget to tell your friends to check it out, too. Our mission at Let's Talk Menopause is to give people the information they need so they can get the health care they deserve. Please visit our website at letstalkmenopause.org for a wealth of menopause information, including a symptoms checklist, information about long-term health risks, how to navigate menopause at work, interviews with health experts, and so much more. A big thank you to Always Discreet for sponsoring this episode of Hello Menopause. Always Discreet, because we deserve better. Hello Menopause is a production from Let's Talk Menopause made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Christine McGinnis. And I'm your host, Robin Gelfenbein. Ina Garkusha is our supervising producer and Alana Herlins is our producer. Laura Boyman and Catherine Devine are our associate producers. Sydney Evans is our dialogue editor and Claire Bidegary Curtis is our sound designer. Hello Menopause was concepted by Jessica Olivier, Jill Pachesnik, and Becca Godwin. This podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever podcasts are found. So check it out.